0: Numbers chapter 4 and 5, we've been going through the book of Numbers. Again, Israel, they're going uh, through and having to conquer piece by piece, mile by mile, this promised land. And God has them all preparing for war and preparing for battle. Right now, though, He's preparing the Levites and what they have to do, then we're going to look in chapter 5, just how God wants to continue that theme and that mental decision to be separated from uncleanness, separated from sinful things before he can get them ready to take the land and to prepare for war. Some important scriptures to note before we dive into Numbers chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 30, it tells us, "'For God is not the author of confusion.'" Uh, In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, it says to do things decently and in order. And what we're going to see here in Numbers 4 is that our God is a God of order. Very specific order. Uh, Some of us, we really like that. Some of us, uh, I heard a pastor once say they go on vacation and then they have their fun clipboard, right? And they go on vacation and say, these are all the things we have to do in order to have fun on this vacation, right? And then there's some others of us that when we go on vacation, we want no clipboard, no plans, no nothing, right? Just a beach or a mountain and food and that's it. Uh, but our God, He's a God of order. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 5, Paul says that he's rejoicing to see their good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So even Paul, he rejoices in seeing the good order in this church of the Colossians. And then finally in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul tells his son in the faith, Titus, he says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you would set in order the things that are lacking. So again, our God is a God of order. Uh, We've talked about it in the past. We looked at that first chapter in Genesis that the life of an unbeliever, once we're converted to a believer, we should be seeing more and more order and more and more life out of our life. Our life should be more and more in order, not in more and more disorder. Our life should have more and more organization as we grow and mature In the Lord. So we're back to Numbers chapter 4. Try to go through this at somewhat of a quick pace, but verse 1 through 3. It says Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. Again, sometimes people, they think of ministry, right? Ah, that's the best job ever. You only work like three hours on Sunday morning and just the rest of the time you're off doing whatever you want. Uh, But how even here the Lord says that they need to enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle. That being a part of a church, there's a whole lot of manual labor and a lot of spiritual labor that takes place throughout the week. And here what we see is that ministry was to begin for these Levites at 30 years of age. In other portions of scripture, we gather that their true life of ministry would start at 25 and they would enter into a five-year probationary period where they would be in an apprenticeship learning from an older Levite. This 30 to 33 years old is known as the prime for most major sports right? After 33 years of age, they say that you begin to decline in your prime. The other day, one of my kids asked me, Dada, are you young or are you old, right? I was like, I think to young people, I'm old and to old people, I'm young, right? I'm sort of in the middle there. But in sports, 30 to 33 years old, in major league sports is usually the prime, unless you're a running back, then it's like 20 to 25 years old. But this 30 to 50 would be the prime of a man's life, combining physical strength, intellect, and wisdom, right? And how to serve the Lord, you really need all three. You need to have physical strength, you need to have intellect, and you need to have wisdom in order to serve the Lord at a great capacity. And they would be in charge of serving God, serving God's people, and serving the high priest Aaron. Again, it's interesting, Jesus, what age was he when he started his ministry? He was 30 years old. Jesus is 30 years old when he starts his ministry. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as our high priest. So again, that's very interesting. Jesus, when he came, he said that he did not come to just destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. So again, some interesting things there. At 50 years old, the priest would stop the physical labor but he would continue to minister in the tabernacle and would switch more to the role of a mentor to other Levites who would be in that role of apprenticeship. And again, it's something that's so lacking in our nation. Older men ministering to younger men and older ladies ministering to younger ladies. And a part of a healthy church, that's exactly what we need. It's the older men being willing, being patient, being loving enough to minister to the younger men, and the younger men being humble enough, being real enough with where they're at to receive wisdom from the older men. But what happens, right, usually the other thing happens. All the older people say, I don't got time for the younger generation. They're too stupid. They're too dumb, right? They're too proud. And then the younger generation says, ah, those boomers, right? You don't got to listen to them. What What do they know? Anything like that. But in a healthy church, you have that healthy mix of apprenticeship and of mentorship, right? Who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy in life? You can't really find anyone in scripture, right? Maybe you look at Elijah, and even he had Elisha and a group of prophets around him. Can't really find anyone in ministry completely solo, completely on their own. Who's your Paul? Who's your Timothy in life? In verse 4 and 5, it says, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and the ark of the testimony with it, and then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles on the table of showbread. They shall spread a blue cloth and put it on the dishes, the pans, the bowls, and the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a covering of badger skin, and they shall insert its poles, and they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, with its wick trimmers, its trays, and all its oil vessels in which they service it. Then they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of badger skin and put it on a carrying beam. Over the golden altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skin, and they shall insert its pools. Then they shall take the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth, covering them with a covering of badger skin, and put them on a carrying beam." Also, they shall take away the ashes from the altar, spread a purple cloth over it, and then they shall put on it all its implements with which they minister there, the firepans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread on it a covering of the badger skins and insert its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go... Then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So again, our God is a God of order. Aaron and his sons, they would go into the tabernacle and they would have to cover each specific piece of furniture. They would go into the tabernacle, they would bring down right the the curtain in between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle, and then they'd go and they'd cover, right? uh, Sandy Adams, he says, maybe that's why uh, moving cloths are blue, right? If you go to Yuhan, you get a moving cloth, they're blue. Maybe that's why, probably not, but funny to think about, right? So Aaron and his sons, they put the moving cloths all over all the furniture. They stick in the poles, right, in each piece of furniture. And then these Levites, right, the Kohath, the Kohathites, the sons of Kohath, they were known as Kohath and sons moving company, right? That's basically what these guys were. They were the moving company. Aaron and his sons, they would cover everything. And then the sons of Kohath were in charge of carrying and moving all the pieces. Pieces of furniture. However, they were not allowed to touch any of the pieces of furniture. They could only touch the cloth or the poles that were in there because they were holy things and it was not their role or their job to touch the holy things. And we sort of talked about this, we, not sort of, we did. We talked about this last Wednesday, how God gives each of us specific roles in ministry. And sometimes we get hung up on them, sometimes we get annoyed with them, and usually the only person we're doing a disservice to is ourselves and the church family around us. Each of us, were given a specific role within the body of Christ, and if we do it well, we honor our God, we worship our God, we grow in life, in worship, and in ministry, and we bless the people around us. There are other men, other really cities, that have been destroyed because they touched the holy things. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, you have a group of men from Beth Shemesh and they decided to look inside of the Ark of the Covenant and God struck down 50,070 men. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, kind of Raiders of the Ark vibes, right? But it's 50,070 men are struck dead in an instant because they touch the holy things of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 through 7, you have a man by the name of Uzzah, and he just tried to keep up the Ark of the Covenant from falling, and he drops dead because no one was to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, We go to verse 16 in Numbers 4, and it says, The appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, and the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Was Eliezer smarter than any of the other Levites? Was he better than any of the other sons of Kohath? No, but God simply gave him the authority to be over the sons of Kohath and to be over these specific ingredients within the tabernacle. All over Scripture, we see the theme of human having to be in submission to another human. Yeah, if we're honest, we don't really like those themes in Scripture, right? The idea of I have to be submitted to another human, don't you know how dumb that other human is, right? I'm way smarter than that other human. But it's found all over Scripture. I don't know if you've ever heard someone right, say, I don't listen to any man, I only listen to God. Has someone ever told you that here? Anybody ever heard someone say that, right? It's just absolutely ridiculousness. Jesus, he sets the example by being submitted to God the Father. Jesus is complete equal to God, but he was submitted to his role and God the Father to his role. We're told all over the New Testament to submit to our governing authorities and to the law of the land. As long as it's biblical, as long as we're not sinning against God. We're told employees are to submit to their bosses. God's Word also tells wives to submit to their husbands. It's all over the Bible. It's just our pride that doesn't really like that part of the Bible. Uh, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8 real quick. Matthew chapter 8. This is uh, one of my favorite characters in the Bible because Jesus is amazed at this man and the faith that this man possessed And I believe it was because he was a man that understood what submission meant, what authority meant, and he was absolutely okay with it. He understood it. Matthew chapter 8, and we'll just look at verse 8 and 9, and it says, The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go when he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, this centurion, Jesus marvels at his faith, and I believe it's because he was a man who was under authority, so God had given him authority. And it's a common theme you see all throughout the Bible. If you are willing to be submitted under authority, God will bless you and give you more and more capacity to be in authority. But those people who are power hungry, they should never be given authority, right? much less in a church. And the Lord usually sees it fit to not allow power-hungry people to be in church, or once a certain person gets to that person of power, sooner or later the truth is revealed about the evil of this person. But all that to say, was Eliezer any greater than any of the other Levites? No, not at all. He was just given a different role. He was just given a different charge. And the only thing that God measures us by, God doesn't measure us by the five talents he may have given you and the one talent he gave me or the ten talents he gave to someone else and the half a talent he gave to someone else. God doesn't measure us by that. The only thing God measures us by is faithfulness. Were you faithful? Hey, that half a talent I gave you, were you faithful with that? Or did you waste it? Because you said, ah, it's just a half a talent. What does God care about that? No, God cares about every single small talent. At one of the pastor's conferences I was at, I remember one pastor, he was sharing a, a dream that he had. And he was just thinking and he was having this dream of this huge field, this huge open field. And then he says that he had, all of a sudden, he sees Billy Graham on one tractor just taking in a bunch of wheat at a time, just harvesting a bunch of wheat. Then next to him is Chuck Smith just harvesting a bunch of wheat. John MacArthur harvesting a bunch of wheat. And he's all excited to get his tractor. And he goes to Jesus. He goes, Hey, where's my John Deere, right? Where's my big tractor? And Jesus just gave him a sickle. And he goes, What? That's it? That's all I get? And he goes, yes, because I care about all the wheat. I care about all the wheat. I care about the wheat in the corners, and the tractors can't get to the corners. So your role, your job is to get the the little nooks and crannies. And now each of us, we don't know why we're given the roles that we're given. The only thing we should be worried about is, hey, Lord, I want to be faithful with what you've given me. Whether it's the sickle with the five-by-five corner or whether it's the tractor just plowing down the wheat. We go back to Numbers chapter 4 verse 17. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the family of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy thing. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task but they shall not go into watch while the holy things are being covered lest they die so god he's telling moses and aaron hey First of all, if any of them mess up, don't just throw out the whole family from being allowed to serve the Lord and be in ministry. Secondly, to protect them from falling and messing up, have everything covered and then have them come in and one by one, hey, your job, hey, you and you, you get the table of showbread. Hey, you and you, you guys get this. Hey, you and you, you guys get that. And truly, if you're in a position of leadership, the decisions that you make should be to protect Life. That's the whole reason why you should be making decisions. And it's not to protect your own life, but to be protecting the life of the people serving under you. Now in verse 21, we look at the sons of Gershon. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, take a census of the sons of Gershon by their father's house, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, all who enter to perform the service, to do the work, in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and caring. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tabernacle of meeting with its covering, the covering of badger skins that's on it, the screen door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen door for the gate of the court, the hangings of the court which are around the tabernacle and altar, and their cords, all the furnishings for their service and all that is made for these things so shall they serve. So the Gershonites, they're in charge of the curtains, the coverings, and the cords that made up the walls, the roof, and the different doors in the tabernacle. These guys, they were the interior designers of the Levites, right? Their job is to take care of all the curtains, all the cords, all the different things like that. Verse 27, Aaron and his son shall assign all the service of the sons of the Gershonites All their tasks and all their service, and you shall appoint to them all their tasks as their duty. This is the service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting, and their duty shall be under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. So once again, God gives this family a role within the tabernacle and says, hey, you guys are under the authority of Ithamar, and Ithamar is going to give each of you your specific roles, your specific duties, the specific things you must do. Verse 29, As for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them. Everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and this is what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting. The boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, and the pillars around the court with their sockets, pegs, and cords, with all their furnishings and all their service. So the sons of Merari... As we just read, they're in charge of all the boards, the bars, the pillars, the sockets, and the vessels of the tabernacle. These guys were the construction Levites, right? They're in charge of all the outward of the tabernacle, all the boards, what keeps it all together. Some estimate that the tabernacle weighed around 19,000 pounds. So the sons of Merari must have been jacked. They must have been big, right? Carrying all of these boards, all of this heavy weight, and now having to truck it through the wilderness, through the sand, through the desert. End of verse 32 says, And you shall assign to each man by name the items he must carry. This is the service of the families of the son of Merari, as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting, under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Each man had a specific assignment. Of what they were to carry when the tabernacle moved. Hey, you, you get board A, B, and C. I don't care if you get bored of your job. These are your boards, right? That's what Ithamar would tell them. Hey, you, you're in charge of this rod. You're in charge of this piece. You're in charge of this socket. Each man was given responsibility for specific parts of the temple. And again, it's not because one guy's greater than the other. It's just the way God does things. Robert Jameson, he says, inventory was kept of them not only on account of their number and variety, but of their comparative commonness and smallness, which might have led to their being lost or missing through carelessness, inadvertency, or neglect, right? Have you ever built something and all of a sudden you lose one or two screws, one or two washers, one or two bolts, Right? Or have you ever built something and all of a sudden you're done and you have one or two screws, one or two bolts, one or two washers, right? God is protecting this by saying, hey, you're in charge of A, B, and C. Robert Jamieson's quote continues, he says, it's a useful lesson showing that God disregards nothing pertaining to his service. And that even in the least and most trivial matters, he requires the duty of faithful obedience, Right? That's a lie that sometimes creeps into our head. Oh, I'm working at church. I'm serving at church. I'm starting this part-time job, but they only have me in charge of, eh, I only clean bathrooms. I only do parking lot. I only do this. So it's not that big of a deal. I don't have to take my job that serious. It's quite the contrary. God, He cares about every single part and aspect of serving the Lord. Every single part. Whether it's vacuuming the sanctuary, whether it's the sound system, the cords, the bathroom, making the tostadas on Sunday morning, right? God cares about every single aspect. And what he requires is faithfulness. Verse 34, Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families and by their father's house, 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work in the tabernacle of meeting, Those who were numbered by their families were 2,750 of the Kohathites, right? All who serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. And those who were numbered of the sons of Gershon by their families and their father's house, 30 years old and above, Right, verse forty, it tells us that they were two thousand six hundred and thirty. Once again, according to the commandment of the Lord, everything is going great for Israel as long as they do as God commanded them. Then, in verse forty-two, we see the number of the sons of Merari, right, thirty years old and above to fifty. Verse forty-eight, it tells us eight thousand five hundred and eighty. Again, it's also interesting, the sons of Merari, the ones having to carry all this heavy stuff, there's more of them to carry the load. And once again, according to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service and according to his task. Thus, they were numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, once again, each Levite is given a specific task, a specific service by God himself, through Moses. Charles Spurgeon, he says, It is worthy of note that these Levites, although they were all equally consecrated to God, had not all exactly the same work to perform. God is not the God of all uniformity. There is a wondrous unity of plan and design in all that He does, but there is also an equally marvelous variety. Our God is not just cookie cutter. It's not just the same thing over and over and over and over. Our God, He has variety. Each of us, were given different roles to perform. We talked about it last week, but let's turn there this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 12. We'll read through uh, this portion of Scripture tonight. Verse 12, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body... Being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. For if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Again, we need each of us and the different roles, the different giftings, the different lives that each of us live. We're all there to bless one another, strengthen one another, sharpen one another, and ultimately glorify the Lord. Right? Aren't you glad that we have more than one sense? We have five senses, right? Aren't you glad you don't just have five noses, right? That'd be kind of weird. You wouldn't see it, but it'd be really weird, right? Right? Or five eyeballs, five mouths. Thank God we don't have five mouths, right? But man, for each of us, we are grateful for every different aspect of the body. And when one part's not working, isn't it an annoyance, right? Isn't it such a great annoyance? You get just a little bit of water in your ear and you spend the rest of your day, right, just trying to get it out. The whole body suffers. So again, each and every one of us, God has given you a different role within the body of Christ. Execute that role to excellence. And the whole body will grow because of it. Verse 21, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks, that there should be no schism in the body, no division, no fighting, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Right? What happens when you have a cell attacking a different cell in your body? It's called cancer, right? It's a very dangerous and terrible thing, yet in the church body... What happens? People, they start fighting with one another. They start separating. They try to get other church members on their side to attack the other church member. That's not what we're here for. We're to care for one another. We're not to think anybody's not important within the church body. Ah, that person doesn't serve. That person doesn't come enough. That person doesn't do what I think to be important. Therefore, they're not that important. Wrong. Every single part of the body is important even those parts that we barely see right imagine if your lungs got bored and said hey we want to be seen we want to be out there right you drop dead you'd have a problem you wouldn't be able to breathe we need each part of the body in the specific role that God has given it of uh, verse 26 and if one member suffers all the members suffer with it or if one member is honored all the members rejoice with it now you are the body of Christ And members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles. Second prophets. Third teachers. After that miracles and gift of healings. Helps, administration, variety of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all miracle workers? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. And we don't have time to go there, but what's the more excellent way in chapter 13? It's love. It's having love for one another. It's having love for the body of Christ. So we would do each of us such a great service to just forget about, oh, that person's got that gifting, that talents. Oh, that person has that role in church. Focus on doing what God has given us in excellence and loving God the body of Christ. That's the biblical thing to do. David Guzik, he says, Much trouble is caused in the service of the Lord by those who desire a different calling than what they have, or who are jealous of those who have a different calling, or by those who exalt one calling and abase another. Everyone has a place and a job, and all can set themselves to do it. Again, we only damage each other and damage ourselves when we're not faithful with what god has given us back to numbers now we look at chapter five we get to some very practical portions of scripture in chapter five and by far one of the strangest portions of scripture in chapter five i remember if you're going through the reading plan we read through this about a month ago and i say, all right lord how do i apply this to my life today but hey let's read uh, verse one through four it says the lord spoke to moses saying command the children of israel that they put out of the camp every leper Everyone who has a discharge and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse, you shall put out both male and female, you shall put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Again, the whole idea here is that if someone is sick, you put them away from the healthy people. Someone showing symptoms, you put them away from the healthy people. It's a theme all throughout scripture. This also sort of, right, it may bother some people that they think the whole role of church is just to love, 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 and nothing else, right? That the only way love looks like is just embracing everybody and just bringing everybody together around a campfire and just singing kumbaya, right? There's some people that they think that's what church is meant to be. But a church, even here within the ancient times right within the time that they're going through the promised land if anyone was sick they were to be sent out of the camp not in the camp not kumbaya hey you're sick hey come on here right let's sing together no they were to be put outside the camp Anyone who was a leper, anyone who had bodily discharge, anyone who was unclean had to be put outside the camp for a specific amount of time. We read, if you remember Leviticus 13, 14, and 15, I don't know if anybody wants to go back through that and cover all of that again, right? Those laws regarding leprosy and everybody's favorite chapter on bodily discharges, right? All of that was covered there. And if you had any of these things that were known as unclean, you were set out of the camp Until you showed signs that you were healthy once again. And being a leper, it was difficult. In Leviticus 13 verse 45 it says, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes will be torn and his head bare. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. So if someone had leprosy, you could tell they had leprosy from a far distance. Because they were bald and they had specific clothes, and then on top of that, they had to be screaming out, unclean, unclean. It's interesting to us because in the New Testament, Dr. J. Vernon McGee says, for the Christian, lepers represent the flesh, and the dead represent this world. And we should separate ourselves from our flesh as much as possible. We need to separate ourselves from the world as much as possible. Robert Jameson, he says, the regulations made for ensuring cleanliness in the camp suggest the adoption of similar means for maintaining purity inside the church. We need to maintain that purity inside the church. Within the nursery, right, I think a lot of the moms will agree if one kid's got green boogers and measles all over them, right? Hey, deal with that at home. Don't bring that here. Stay outside the camp until you're healthy and back. But we need to also apply this to our lives spiritually. And that's where we sort of, eh, we, don't, we want to dodge it a bit, right? During the last two years, if someone said they had COVID, were you just going out there, hugging them, kissing them, right? Sharing a drink with them. Or were you saying, hey, how many negative tests do you have before I can see you again? Right? Everybody handles that a bit different. But spiritually, that's the way we should be handling this. Robert Jameson, he continues, says, Although in large communities of Christians it may be often difficult or delicate to do this, the suspension or in flagrant cases of sin, the total excommunication of the offender from the privileges and communion of the church is an imperative duty. It's necessary for the moral purity of the Christian as the exclusion of the leper from the camp was to physical and ceremonial health and purity in the Jewish church. So how do we handle this in our lives? When we have people that confess to be believers and we see the sin that is rampant in their lives, do you just make excuses for it? Do you just say, oh, I, got, I just got to show grace and mercy and just continue to be besties with them? No, biblically, you should separate yourself from them until they show signs that they are healthy once again. That, that's the biblical thing that we need to do. And sometimes as a church, we have to make the difficult decision that someone's in the hospital, right? Jesus says the church is a hospital for the sick, but in the hospital, you got to be in certain places, you can't just be running around. If you got COVID, you can't just be running around. Oh, I just want to hold a baby. It'll help me feel better, right? You can't do that. you got to stay in your specific floor. you got to stay in your specific place. And it's the same within the church. If someone gets to the point where they don't want to be healed, they don't want to be clean, then the church has to make that difficult decision to separate until they're healthy once again. So one question for us to think about is, why is purity and separation from sin So important. Why is it so important to God? We know that God is holy. He's a consuming fire. But why should purity and separation from sin be important to you and I? Why should it be important? Matthew chapter 5 verse 8 I think gives us one of the greatest reasons why it should be important. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to see God in your life? You want to see God move in your life? You want to see God work in your family, in your home, and in your life in a great way? Be pure. Be pure. Be separated from this world. Be separated from the sin, from the flesh, from the evils of this world. Be willing to have hard conversations with other believers or so-called believers. Because if you want to see God, you will be pure in heart. And your life will be a life of purity. That's what we should be. That's why next week we'll look at, yeah, I think next week we'll look at chapter 6. And that's all about a special vow, right? The Nazarite vow. And that was just another level of purity and separation for the Lord. And oftentimes the men who would go through these Nazarite vows, God would use them. In a special way. Look at Samson, you look at John the Baptist, they had the Nazarite vow, and God used them in a special, special way because they were even more willing to be pure and separated from the things of this world. The just simple question is how badly do you want to see God? How badly do you want to see God in your life? How badly do you want Him to move in your life? It's not that we're owed Him moving in our life as a result of our purity. But the more pure we are, the more naturally he can move in and through us. The more pure we are, the more we're going to sense the Holy Spirit. The more we're going to have a broken heart towards God, towards the word, towards sin, towards people that are hurting. Next in chapter 5 of verse 5, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin that that men commit, "...in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. But if a man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for that wrong must go to the Lord for the priest." in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. So what is God saying? True restitution in the sight of God is to pay back whatever was taken, pay back whatever was damaged, plus 20%. And in the sight of God, every wrong will be made right. On this side of eternity or afterwards, every single wrong will be made right. So even if the person that you wronged, they're gone and their whole family's gone, God is saying make restitution to God himself by going to the priest. I think this is something we as Christians, we really need to work on, right? Imagine you just got a brand new car and you're in the parking lot after service and Pastor Zach's in a hurry to go see his wife and I just back out full speed, boom, hit your car, right? Oh man, I'm sorry. Sorry. Would you forgive me? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Big hug. See you later, man. I love being a Christian. See you later. Peace, right? Would you feel great about that? No restitution needs to be made. And oftentimes as believers, believers and Christians burn one another and they think they can just say, it's okay. God forgives me. God forgives you. I'll see you next Sunday. And that's not what true restoration looks like. That's not what restitution looks like. Again, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, he says repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is way more than saying, I'm sorry. And this is a biblical truth. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, this is something I think we all need to work on. I'm currently working on this with my kids. They do things wrong, they make mistakes, they just say, I'm sorry, and they expect everything to be a-okay. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, actually, let's look at verse 8 first. Sorry if you wrote that down in your notes. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, it says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. But the sorrow of this world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Again, when we're sorry, something should change. Restitution should happen and it should be a 180 that takes place and then something should grow in us, right? In verse 11, we see there, right, indignation, fear, desire, zeal, vindication. Something should be produced out of godly sorrow. But the sorrow of this world only produces death. The sorrow of this world just says, I'm sorry, my B, my bad, wasn't that big of a deal. It's okay, let's move forward, let's just brush that under the rug. That only produces more and more death death that's only just going to produce more and more separation more and more pain in the people around you that you love but true godly sorrow it produces repentance you can write down luke chapter 3 verse 8 they're speaking to the pharisees right jesus tells the pharisees that they should bear fruits worthy of repentance hey what's the fruit of your repentance You say you're sorry, what's the fruit attached to it? Are you doing the same thing a day later, a week later, a month later? Doesn't really seem like you're that sorry. Where is the fruit of your repentance? A great example of this is in Luke chapter 19, verse 8. A biblical description of a man who was in sin, a man who did wrong, was sorry, made restitution, and even Jesus saw his great repentance. In Luke chapter 19, Right, we know this guy, he's famous, His short little guy climbing trees, Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, verse 8, it says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. You see Zacchaeus doesn't just say, oh, I'm sorry for robbing and stealing from those people for all these years. Jesus, you forgive me. You paid it all, right? It's okay. No, he says, man, if I've done anyone wrong, I'm not going to restore them 20%. Or 120%, I'm going to restore to them 400% of what I took from them. And Jesus sees this and he says, hey, today salvation has come to this house. So again, I think this is something many believers, we need to work on. We hurt people. We damage people. We do wrong. We, We all sin and fall short. However, are we truly seeking to make restoration restitution, really trying to right the wrongs that we have made, or are we too prideful and just say, "My be, no big deal, it was an oopsie-daisy, my mistake, or do we take ownership of our sin? On Monday night with the young adults, we're looking at David, and I think David is such a man after God's own heart because David always takes complete ownership of his sins. Every time he takes complete ownership of them, he doesn't say it was Bathsheba's fault, he doesn't say it's the accountant's fault he does says is that he says I have sinned lord against you and you alone i have sinned this is my fault this is my problem lord allow your wrath to be on me not on the sheep of israel and that's what a man or woman after god's own heart does in verse 9 and 10 back to numbers chapter 5 it says every offering of all the holy things of the children of israel which they bring to the priest shall be his and every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives the priest shall be his. So in the midst of all this separation because of sin, because of uncleanliness, God wants to remind the people, hey, you have access to me. And God wants to remind the people, hey, the Levites, the way they provide for their families is by taking a certain portion of the sacrifices. Here in verse 11, we come to one of the strangest portions of scripture. Strangest portions of scripture, there's just no other way to put it. Uh, But Numbers chapter 5 verse 11, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, If any man's wife go astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, they shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephath of barley meal, he shall pour no oil on it, put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, and offering for remembering, For bringing iniquity to remembrance, and the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it on the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord. Uncovering the woman's head, she lets out her hair and puts the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. So up until now, right, pretty normal stuff in Leviticus and Numbers. We keep going, verse 19. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But... If you have gone astray while under your husband's authority and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot, Then the woman shall say, Amen. So be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water, and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand. He waves the offering before the Lord. He brings it to the altar, and the priest shall take a handful of the offering as a memorial portion burn it on the altar, and afterwards make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully towards her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her bellies will swell up, and her thigh will rot and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute all this upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt again, strange portion of scripture, ladies. I know some of you are thinking, Hey, where can I get this drink that rots out my thighs? But hey, that's not what this is about, that's not what this is about whatsoever. The Lord is uh, using basically this is the first ever lie detector test, right? There's no electricity needed, no waves, no needles, no yes or no questions, but this is all to deal with jealousy. And jealousy is a difficult thing in a marriage, whether it's founded, which is terrible, or whether it's unfounded. If it's founded, it leads to the fallout of a spouse's unfaithfulness and all of the tragedy of that broken trust. Or if it's unfounded, then one spouse is at the mercy of the other spouse trusting them and trying to do whatever they can to get this spouse to trust them. Either way, it's a terrible place to be. And it's difficult because all love will have some type of jealousy associated with it, right? Whether you have, if you have a child, right? And they say someone else is their favorite, right? What do you mean someone else is your favorite? I'm the one that does it. There's there's a jealousy there. Any, Any relationship that has love will have some type of jealousy. Even our God, he's a jealous God, but it's in a holy and perfect way. That being said, jealousy within a marriage has to be dealt with. Matthew Poole says this law was given partly to deter wives from adulterous practices and partly to secure and protect the wives against the rage of their hard-hearted husbands who might otherwise upon mere suspicion destroy their wife or put her away. This protects both parties, right? You don't want to be flirting around at the office because you don't want your stomach to blow up and your thighs to rot out, right? Right? You're going to have to be brought to church. You have to talk with the pastors, drink this gross drink, and see what happens. So you're going to stay as far away from any part of accusation. You're going to stay as far away as you can from it. A couple of things to note here. The sacrifice in verse 15 was to have no oil and no frankincense. You see, oil and frankincense would sweeten and soothe a bitter grain offering, right? I don't know how many of you enjoy just taking a spoonful of flour in the morning all by itself, right? It's bitter. It's gross. And this would show that this situation of jealousy between a husband and wife is a bitter situation. And there's nothing soothing about it. And there's nothing sweet about this type of a situation. It's just simply a bitter And difficult place to be in a marriage. Either the husband is jealous and his jealousy is founded. Or he's jealous and it's just made up imaginary suspicion. It's a terrible place to be. Interesting note again. Verse 17 is the only place in all the Bible where you see holy water mentioned. And it's not in a great place, right? I don't know why you'd want a cup of holy water with you. It's only for this case or this use. One commentator in verse 18, because the priest is supposed to uncover the woman's head, the idea of uncovering her head was to unbind and let down her hair. Numbers 5 verse 18, uh, it speaks of this unbinding of the woman's hair as a hint that she was viewed as being unclean. Because lepers were to let their hair hang loose as a mark of their, unclean, of their uncleanness. Just a bitter situation. David Gruzik, he says, think of what made the water bitter. It was the holy dust of the tabernacle and the oath containing the curse of the sinner, right? The extra ink, it scraped off into that cup. And the combination of the holiness of God and the penalty to sinners is a bitter drink to swallow. Again, a, a difficult situation. How can we apply this to our lives? The, the best ways I think we can apply this to our lives, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it tells us to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. We need to be guarding our hearts. We need to be protecting our hearts, protecting our minds from going to certain places with certain co-workers or friends or strangers, people we run into. We need to guard our heart and guard our mind. God, He loves and protects the marriage. It's so important, so special to him. It's one of the reasons I believe why marriage is so attacked and being so twisted and perverted in the day and age we live in because Satan hates it. He's doing all he can to just mess with it and pervert it. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 28. Jesus speaks about lust in a man or a woman's heart. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 28 he says but i say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin Cut it off and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So if you are at a place in a job where you're flirting with someone, better to step out of that job, move to a different position, get a different job and save your marriage than to stay there. It's better for you if you're struggling with pornography or lust. It's better to get just a flip phone or an old Nokia or something like that. Then deal with that. It's better to get rid of it. That's the type of mindset we need to have. This is also very important for husbands and wives before you get married to know what you're getting into. Because if your husband works in Military, your husband's a lawyer, your husband's a doctor, your husband's a police officer, a pastor. There's certain things they cannot share with you. And you have to be okay with that ahead of time in the marriage. However, if they're not doing any job that requires them to have a certain amount of confidence, confidentiality with someone else, then husband or wife, there's no reason why you should be keeping any type of secret from your spouse. Whether it's phone, whether it's password, whether it's anything like that. There's no reason for that. One final scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, let us put off every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance that race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, if you're dealing with this, look at Jesus, how he was willing to lay aside everything. He stepped down from heaven to be obedient to the Father, and he ran his race perfectly. Don't hold back. Don't hold back those little sins, those weights, those little so-called freedoms that you think you're more free because you're keeping this for yourself. Let go of those things. Put it to death and taste of what true freedom is like.